Hello and welcome to Will Also Be with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Sorry the podcast has been going up a little bit uh, late the last couple of weeks, but I've had some other stuff going on and I'd like to do a new intro because I've I've recorded some of these chats, you know, um, sometimes up to a couple of months ago. So it's nice to be able to put it in context. So today's uh, episode is with someone called Jan Fran. Now, wow, what an incredible talent Jan Fran is. I only really knew Jan from her work online, a lot of the videos she'd done for the feed and um, a lot of her online presence, which I just found so hilarious and smart and interesting and provocative and I was really looking forward to, you know, sitting down with her and getting to know her a little better. But I, I really was amazed by this chat. I just got on with her like a house on fire. I found her incredibly interesting. She has some brilliant insights into, um, you know, uh, what it was like to grow up in the world that she grew up in in Australia and how much of the Cronulla riots affected her as a person. And, uh, you know, anyway, I don't want to get ahead of the game, but it's a fascinating chat. Thank you so much for listening. We now have a Patreon page. Uh, it is patreon.com slash willosophy, W-I-L-O-S-O-P-H-Y. That's how we keep the lights on here at uh, Willosophy. So uh, podcast Mike, who helps put together the episodes, and of course Mike Heller, US producer, and James Fosdyke, who does all the individual art for each of the episodes. Um, uh, so we, we like to pay them. I am. Uh, I am not a. Uh, I'm not a professional. Uh, you know, celebrity chef. I actually like to pay the people who work for me. I don't get paid personally for this podcast, but that's okay. I get paid uh, in the wonderful conversations that I get to have with other people. But you know what? It'd be great if the Patreon got to a point where I could also take a wage out of it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not anti making money out of this podcast. I'm just saying, in the four years I've done it, I've made no money. <laughs> I feel like that's anyway. What I'm saying is. Your money from Patreon isn't going to me. It's going to the people who help you put out this podcast weekly. And I am the only thing that stands in between this podcast coming out weekly. Everybody else is doing their job and deserves to be paid for it. These are not intros as much as me having a nervous breakdown every time I introduce one of these episodes. But I appreciate that you're listening. Uh, Thank you so much and uh, enjoy this episode with Jan Frank. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and uh, very excited to have today's guest on because it's somebody that I, well, literally just met for the first time, I believe. Uh, Now, who knows? We may discover that we've met another time once I've said something ridiculous like this and I don't remember and then I'll be really embarrassed and... But I've said it. I've said I think we met for the first time just down at Sonali, my favorite little cafe just down the road from here. Uh, But this is a person who uh, I've met online uh, previously and been a great fan of her work and the amazing work she was doing, particularly on the feed on SBS. Uh, So um, let's just start. Let's get into it and I can discover whether I was right or wrong. Uh, This is how the podcast starts. I ask the guests who they are. So who are you? I am Jan Fran. Um, I'm a journalist, a, um, producer, a television presenter, but probably the best description of actually what I do came from a very, very drunk lady in the line to the compost toilets at the Meredith music festival who spotted me and she went, Oh, I know you. She's like, you're that lady that talks about politics on the internet. And I was like, yeah, that is me. 
that is what I do. Well, that's interesting because when you said like journalist and producer, you, you said them all with a question mark at the end. Yeah, that's right. Whereas <laughs> when you said you're the lady who talks about politics on the internet, you said that quite firmly. There was no question involved in that. You're like, you felt comfortable. <laughs> oh my God, this feels like a psych session. I love it. No, ex- it's exactly right. Cause I'm like, my voice tends to go up in pitch a little bit when yeah. I say, journalist? A journalist? Is journalism still a thing? <laughs> Am I getting paid to do <laughs> You know, um, and, and it's partly because like my role has changed so much in the last five years that it's very hard to put a label on the type of work that I do other than that lady that talks about politics on the internet. Um, so that's now on my business card and my website. That makes sense to me though, because I, yeah, okay. W- was I correct in saying that we just met for the first time or have we met previously? No, we had just met for the first time. Okay, I was going to troll you and say, well, we have met previously. I can't believe you don't remember. But that, no, you, I'm the perfect person to troll in that situation <laughs> because have. I have a terrible memory for, particularly for faces. I'm, I'm, quite, I'm okay situationally when it comes to remembering people. If I see people in the context where I normally see them, I'm pretty good at remembering who someone is. Yeah, right. But if you take people out of that sort of situational memory, I am absolutely terrible. So um, I was actually pleasantly surprised that I actually recognized you when I ran into yes. you in the cafe, to be honest. Me too. <laughs> I'm always pleasantly surprised when someone recognizes me. Now, yeah. so uh, this is interesting to me because, and this is why I'm excited about today's episode is that A, I'm an admirer of what you do, but B, I don't actually know a lot about you. And so this mm. is going to be as fascinating for me as I get to know you as hopefully it will be for the people who are listening. But I discovered you, I guess, as that lady on the internet talking about politics and because your pieces that you were doing were so smart and so, uh, had a a very distinctive voice, but were genuinely comedic as well. It was hard for me to know exactly what position you and how you would describe yourself, what it was that you thought you were making. So can we start with those? Yeah. And and uh, can I ask you just a little bit about, A, how you started doing those videos and sort of what your intention was with them, what skills you were bringing to the table, how you would describe what you were doing. Yeah. So for anyone that hasn't seen or doesn't know who the hell I am or what kind of videos I make, um, I, about a year ago, so probably early last year, um, so I I worked on a show called The Feed, um, which was on SBS Viceland. It's sort of, it's it's targeting a millennial audience. And we very quickly realized, I mean, to be honest, we knew it from day one that our audience was online. Mm. And especially- We're targeting an audience that doesn't watch television. (laughs) Correct. Like, it's like somebody just tasked us with the impossible where they were like, hmm, we would like you to increase your television audience, but have them be made up of 16 to 24 year olds on the secondary network of Australia's second favorite public broadcaster. (laughs) (laughs) And and we're like, okay. um, Challenge accepted. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I was like, no, challenge not accepted. I'm not doing this on TV. I'm I want to focus on the internet because I find the online space and social media so interesting. Um, so like the possibilities are endless. I'm much more, I feel much more at home in that space than I do in, in television. And I feel at home in television. I'm comfortable there, but just being able to create your own audience, talk to people directly, make the stuff that you want to make with no restrictions. You know, it's like, Make tell people about a subject in any way that you see fit. You know, you're not restrained to that news um, story kind of template. So early last year, I was like, okay, I want to create something that lives on social media for a social media audience. And I want it to be about 
stuff. Like I want it to be about important shit. I want it to be about topical issues. I want it to be about social issues. I want people to think about, you know, um, where they are in the world a little bit more. Um, Cause I've just always had a fundamental interest in this stuff, like from day one, you know, um, talking about sort of politics and social issues. Um, I'm sort of like my dad. He just can't do small talk. Just doesn't know how. Can't do it. Not with anyone. So I've always sort of um, been very engaged like that. Uh, and I decided, okay, I sort of want to create like an opinion analysis explainer kind of segment. Um, and I did. And it, it's called The Frant, which is the Jan Fran rant. Um, very clever. And oh, you, you, you're talking to somebody who literally is doing a show called Willosophy with yeah. Will Anderson. So <laughs> yeah, you're, you're in the right space for yeah. you know, coming up with a segment and then uh, putting your name in the pun title of yeah. it. Yeah. And honestly, this is a very safe space for that, that sort of gear. Love that. And look, that was 90% of the work. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> Once I got to that, I was like, beautiful. I, I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm Jan Fran. I'm doing a rant, yeah. you know? Um, and so what I would do would be uh, kind of opinion and analysis pieces that would react to news of the day. So something would happen and I would kind of write up a script of uh, what I sort of thought about it, some things to consider, some research, some information, um, and, and present it in this very kind of simple way where you're doing, you're barreling the camera, you're talking, there's a lot of edit cuts, um, and it's a relatively short, you know, video, three, four minutes, and you post it online. Um, and were you writing and researching it all by yourself? Did you yes. have anybody else who was helping you with no. these pieces? No. So... Okay, so how long would it take you to put together one of these pieces in general? Well, sometimes it would you you'd have to go like eight hours from pitch to publish because the timeliness is so much more important online than what it is not online. Mm. Um, and you know, if you want to react to news of the day, you have to be very quick. So it actually ended up being a bit of a pressure cooker of a situation because I was writing them myself um, uh, alone um, and. You so I had you know maybe four hours to construct an argument, which is ve it's very different to just telling someone a news story or just relaying information. You are you're trying to construct, yeah, you're, you're constructing an argument, right? So you have to you have to think about that very differently. Um, well, you have to get across an issue. You have yeah. to decide what your opinion is around an issue. You have to test whether that opinion is a valid opinion to have. You have to consider what the arguments against that Correct. opinion would be and respond to them almost to within the piece and then make it entertaining and then sort of, you know, write it, film it, get it all done, get it out there so that pe people are still interested in the issue to which you're responding. Which exactly. I could, when I would watch them, I would be so impressed by the amount of work that clearly had gone into something but I, I, I did also get a little overwhelmed by the amount of work that would go into these things. Was it overwhelming yeah. to you? Um, sometimes it could get a bit overwhelming. Yeah, sometimes it could. I remember after I, I wrote one about the Christchurch um, massacre um, and I remember being a little bit overwhelmed after that one because I, I stayed up quite late writing because I wanted to get it right and it was such a big issue and I didn't just want to be wading into something with like nothing to say. I, I tend like if I, and, and I have done ones where look, it's, Hey, it's television. You know what I mean? Like we need to fill some airtime here, girl. So, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll write a piece that I don't feel hugely passionate or invested about. And it, it's more of like an explainer piece or whatever, but with Christchurch, I felt really invested in it. 
um, and invested in the video that I made after that about kind of the, ne the necessity of diversity in newsrooms. Um, and I felt a lot of pressure. I think I put a lot of pressure on myself to get that one right and to research it right and to make sure that I was, you know, still being respectful to the victims and not not putting this thing out there of like, here's my opinion after this massacre. I didn't I didn't want that, um, but I wanted I, I wanted people to know that it was fucked. And it, what that story ended up being about was just the way that the press had reported on the shooter and, you know, the Daily Mail, paragon of good journalism, obviously, had called him something like, you know, the angelic blonde-haired boy who turned into a, a mass killer. And, you know, for me, it's like you quickly realise how um, when when someone is white, we, we, we rush for relatability, right, because they are of us. They are of this society that we're part of and we don't want to be complicit in any of this. So we have to we have to identify that they're one of us and then talk about how they turned, how they stopped being one of us. You know, it was this angelic boy, this farm boy. He was a normal person just like the rest of us and something went wrong. And that's how we try and relate to and understand, um, you know, uh, white people that commit crimes comparative to brown people who commit these kind of crimes, right? So uh, diversity in the people who are actually presenting the news, but not just presenting the news, the, you know, uh, researching the news, producing the news, you know, from ground floor up and whether they be people of different uh, races, cultural experience, whether different sexes, different age groups, you know, that idea of diversity. Speak to me a little bit about how you think that affects the way that news is represented? Well, I think, um, so diversity is, there's, there's two things. There's diversity and inclusion, right? So diversity is, we, it just is. Like we just are a diverse country. We're a diverse people. We are a diverse workforce. You know, um, people who are of non-English speaking backgrounds have jobs. Gay people have jobs. Trans people have jobs. Women have jobs. And we all have jobs, right? So we're already a diverse workforce. The key here is inclusion, is how do you include everybody into key decision-making in workforces, right? Um, I remember growing up, so I grew up in um, in Sydney. I grew up in Sydney's western suburbs in Bankstown. I don't know if you know or have heard of Bankstown. I, do, I have because I lived in yeah. Sydney. But uh, for people who are listening to this podcast all over the world, explain to them what, where Bankstown fits into Sydney. So uh, Bankstown is, um, look, it's very, it's heavily Lebanese. <laughs> That's how I would describe Bankstown. Um, and it was sort of neighbour to a suburb called Lekemba, which was affectionately nicknamed Lebkemba. Clever. Hilarity Clever. ensues. Yeah. Was there no Bankstown uh, <laughs> <Not> racial <laughs> epitaph name? No? No, it was just, it was Bankstown. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in the late nineties, early two thousands, probably in the lead up to Cronulla, um, that particular area was an area that was constantly reported on as being, um, you know, uh, a, a haven for gangsters and ethnic crime and drugs and, um, you know, the Lebanese gangs running rampant. And there were some horrible incidents that happened, um, in, in that time with, you know, Lebanese male perpetrators, um, and so I just remember thinking, uh, looking at the way that the press kind of covered that um, and, and would report on the Lebanese community and would, you know, talk about, uh, the term was of Middle Eastern appearance, mm. right? That's the term that they would use to describe what was always very unsavoury characters like gangsters, criminals, 
rapists, drug dealers, you know, that kind of typical uh, male, Lebanese, scary kind of guy. That came to be the epitome of the community. Um, And I think it's just, it's partly because there were just no other voices in that space to go, you know what, that's actually not what the community is like. That is not the community. That's what you think the community is. Because every time I read that phrase of Middle Eastern appearance, I would just, the first thing I thought is, is that's not true. Like I'm of Middle Eastern appearance. This is what it looks like to be of Middle Eastern appearance. And this is a complete misrepresentation of me and of my community and of the hundreds of thousands of Australians who identify as Lebanese, um, who are, you know, living in Sydney and or all over Australia. So I do wonder if there had just been more agency and a little bit more diversity, if there was at least one or two or three people who were of um, Middle Middle Eastern Eastern appearance, appearance. (laughs) you know, sitting in on a meeting and a story was pitched and and true inclusion had, had been reached at that point. I wonder if the angles would have been different. I wonder if someone would have been able to say, you know what, that's a shit story. Why are we going with that lead? Why are we going with that headline? Okay, you want to print that? Print this as well. You know, I, I, I just, I wonder if the balance would have been different between the type of stuff that we were getting. How do you feel about the cyclical nature of that in that, you know, so uh, Pauline Hansen, uh, who for international listeners is a sort of a right-wing Australian politician who's run, you know, a lot of the time uh, on racial grounds. And when she, when I first started doing stand-up, you know, one of my first routines that people liked was about the fact that she said Asians were going, Asians were coming to Australia and we we're going to ruin Australia. And then twenty years later, she was back and she was, you know, Muslim, it's Muslims now. It was exactly the same arguments, but she'd moved on from the Asians that we were fine with now, yeah. and she was on to the it was the Muslims now and. What you say about people of Middle Eastern appearance is now what, if you read the newspapers in Melbourne, where I live at the moment, is happening with, you know, of African appearance, you know, with the, you know, again, and I use, you know, kind of air quotes for this, but the, you know, Sudanese gang problems that very much those same headlines seem like the exact same headlines I was seeing in, in Sydney around the time period that you're talking about. The fact that each generation who has come to this country has had some version of that and it repeats itself and plays over and over. I don't even know exactly what I'm asking you other than what do you think about that? Um, I, I don't like it. No. Well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Let's assume that I also don't like it. What does it say about us that... Is it a, a nature of that every time someone new comes here that we go through this exact same thing? Yeah. Why don't we recognize that it is the exact same thing? And the fact that in the same way as, you know, we were scared of the Asians taking over. Yeah. Now we're like, oh, no, it's, we've really like. Can I be honest? Yeah. This is what I think it is. Yeah. Um, I think Australia is very white and Australia is very xenophobic. I don't know if I would use the term racist per se, particularly in, in relation to Australia and immigrants. Good. Australia and like it. Australia and Indigenous, mm-hmm. yeah, I'd sure. probably use the term mm. racist there, yes. Um, and, and to some extent when it comes to immigration, I think racist is an appropriate term. Xenophobic, I think, fits more into this particular So explain of... to me what you see the difference between the two being. I think xenophobia is more a, 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 something that stems um, a little bit more from um, ignorance or something that where you're, you're just a little bit more reserved about wanting to partake um, with uh, someone of a different culture, right? It's not that you necessarily think that you are ethnocentrically better. Like, I'm not better than you because I'm white, 
right? That mm. probably feeds into racism a little yeah. bit more. They're different. You're, I don't understand them. I'm yeah, scared. it's more just like, ah, yeah. oh, I'm a little bit apprehensive. Mm. And you know what? I would prefer apprehension makes me uncomfortable and I would just prefer not to deal with being uncomfortable. So if you could just go away, that would be great. <laughs> That's xenophobia. You know, whereas yeah. racist is... I am white. My culture is superior. My skin color is superior. Look how great Western civilization is. You're only here because of me. Go fuck yourself. I think you're the first person who's quoted Donald Trump on the show. But (laughs) uh, yeah, okay. I I understand what you mean. And I think that that's, I mean, as much as, you know, a straight white Australian guy can have a commentary around the idea of, you know, being discriminated against. When I see it, I recognize the difference between what you're saying is that I don't, I don't think that the majority of Australians are inherently racist, but I do see a a great element of that xenophobia that you explained, the fear of others or the misunderstanding or the, we need it to be around for 20 years before we're like, ah, we can relax now. We're fine. You know, you're part of the broader Australian community. It's, It's an uncomfortability that, you know, lots of people don't like being uncomfortable. I mean, it's uncomfortable. You, if you're uncomfortable, you would prefer to be comfortable, I mm. imagine. Um, and so, Controversial. <laughs> maybe. But it's right. Yeah, no, I agree. It, absolutely. So tell, uh, tell me so, this then. Yeah. What, did, what was your experience growing up like? Did you feel that because of your you know, background, because of the fact that you are of Middle Eastern appearance, that you were lumped in with you know, what the media were portraying that as being? So a little bit. So my, I um, term myself um, ethnic light, <laughs> which is like skim milk, you know, um, where I, I don't outwardly present as anything in particular. Like, for example, I'm not going to be the first to be abused on a bus, right? Because I'm five foot two. I'm, my skin is, I have olive skin. I have straight brown hair. Normally it's curly, but it's straightened for the purposes of today. Um, and so I, I'm not going to be the first to stand out in a public place, right? My skin is not black. Um, I'm not South Asian or North Asian. I don't wear a hijab. I'm not an overpowering, you know, Lebanese guy with a mullet and gold chains and a bum bag. Um, good look, by the way, not joking. Um, so I'm, I'm none of those things, right? So I'm, I'm never going to be the first one targeted. So my experience was always a little bit more subtle. Um, I remember being at university and, uh, you have to go around the class and the teacher says, okay, well now everybody's going to tell us, um, you know, uh, where it is that they come from and where it is that they grew up in Sydney. And for me, those were the two worst questions that I could possibly have to answer publicly, telling people that I was Lebanese and that I grew up in Bankstown because there was so much shame attached to being that, particularly in the late 90s, um, early 2000s, when I was leaving high school and coming of age. Um, so there, there were these sort of subtleties that you would experience in these moments where it, it would sort of spring up on you. You know, nobody would ever tell me, oh, you should go back to where you came from, except one time in primary school, let's face it, did happen. Um, but that teacher wasn't allowed to teach again yeah, after that, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that teacher was fired. Yeah. <laughs> Um, promoted probably actually. Probably probably promoted at that time. Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, it would be things like we'd go to a nightclub, um, which was hot stuff in the early 2000s. And we would, if we were going with, with boys, um, you know, and they would be like wog boys if they weren't Lebanese, they were Italian or Macedonian or whatever it was. And, you know, they looked like wog boys and, um, we would always either go come in 
earlier than what they would, or if we thought there were too many of them and not enough of us, we would pretend to be their girlfriends, even though they they were just mates, because we knew that once we got to the door of the nightclub, they wouldn't be allowed in. And it happened time and time and time again. And you know what? It became... We, it was water off a duck's back to us, right? Because we were like, okay, well, you boys are probably not going to be let into the nightclub. So what's the strategy? Let's talk. Rather than, um, can we just process the fact that Mm. you're not going to be let into a nightclub because of the way you look, right? So The normalization of it. it That you have to just go, this is the way things are. That's right. Find a way to deal with it rather than being able to acknowledge that it's just completely wrong that it's happening in the first place. Exactly. And, you know, we, we wouldn't. We just wouldn't think it was worth our while to acknowledge that something completely wrong was happening, even though we knew it was. But are we really going to go up to the bouncer and go, you know what, I know what's happening here. You're not letting us in because we look Lebanese and you're, you know, intimidated or you have an idea of what you think is going to happen if you let these guys in. It was like, let's just get into the nightclub and have a nice time and go home. You know, that's all we want. And I think now, and especially because of social media, and this is like the beauty and the terror of it, right? people have mediums that they never had before. So you're hearing more from minority voices that would not have had the platform to say what they wanted to say five, ten years ago. Certainly when I was growing up, there were no platforms by which you could just call out some shit that was happening or call out Andrew Bolt or call out whoever it was that was writing whatever they were writing in the, you know, um, daily telly. Um, so now I think there's a, there's a level of empowerment that is that is happening within minority communities, just in the sense that they have a platform for a voice that they've been using for decades. You just haven't been hearing it, you know. Not you per se, Will. But no, no, no. I, I, I will lump myself in that. And I consider myself to be a reasonably curious and well-read and, you know, a, a person who surrounded myself with at least a, a reasonable element of, you know, diversity in my life because of the nature of my work and the, you know, yeah. the places that I've been. But no, I absolutely 100% will say that social media in particular, you don't realize how much of society was set up to not have us ever acknowledge yeah. that other people were having these things happen. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I, I forgive people sometimes the idea of, the thing I always say is once you know, there's a difference, but sometimes I forgive people for, for not knowing yeah. in the first place, because so much of our society was set up for them to not know. It, it, you, don't, you don't have much excuse these days not to know. The yeah. voices are out there. The arguments are out there. But like you said, in the old days, you would just get the Andrew Bolt opinion and the whole bunch of other people who agreed with the Andrew Bolt opinion. And yeah. you wouldn't get to hear from the people he's actually writing about or the people who have a different opinion to that. Yeah. And there is still, I mean, obviously there is still that imbalance of like, yeah, Andrew Bolt has a national platform in and, and a nationally syndicated column or whatever it is. And you are just somebody on Twitter. I understand that there is an imbalance there that needs to be acknowledged, but with enough voices on Twitter or with enough voices on Facebook or with, you know, the, the videos that I make that get seen by m- millions of people, that is still a platform that was not available certainly to me a few years ago. And I, and I hear people all the time say, you know, oh, diversity, Why we, all of a sudden we're talking about diversity and it's just such a buzzword and that's all I hear now. And, you know, and I think, babe, I've been talking about this for 30 years. Like I've been, when I left uni in, um, in 2008, I graduated from university. I did not deliberately, deliberately, I didn't apply for any commercial 
TV networks because I thought, well, they're not going to want somebody that looks like me. I have olive skin. I'm five foot two. I have curly hair. I'm, um, I'm Lebanese. There was all that stuff happening. It was just after Cronulla. Cronulla happened in 2005. There was still, you know, residues of that. I don't have the contacts. It's just not a place for someone like me. And again, it was that water of a duck, off a duck's back attitude of like, well, that's the way it is you know? And so I won't apply for this. I won't go down this road. I will go down this road. And it's only really been in the last few years that I've reflected back on that time. And I've realized that I, that I walked through the world at that time, genuinely believing that things and places and opportunities weren't for me because of the way I looked. And that's fucked. And I don't walk through the world like that anymore. I, I fucking strut down that, that, that route. And say, if, if there's no room for me here, I'll make it, you know. And I think that's what a lot of um, um, folks from minority backgrounds are, are, are doing. So when did that mindset change for you? Do you, do you was there a specific incident or was it uh, like a, a culmination of a bunch of things? Was there a period of time in your life that you were going through that made you more aware of the fact that you had to change your, your, your mindset needed to change from one to the other? Like, do you, do you have a sense of how you went from the person of, I'll never consider this, you know, we'll, we'll pretend to be the girlfriends of the guys at the nightclub to yeah. someone who's like, no, no, I'm going to strut this and this is who I am. Um, I think the big thing for me was um, really feeling a sense of community and a sense of the, uh, this idea that actually other people think this too. It's not just me that thinks this stuff is fucked. So many other people think it's fucked and we're hearing their voices more and more. And I would say like really the, the last two years have been a real kind of eye opener for me, particularly in terms of the sort of the work that I do and the videos that I make. I have never had as much of a response to my work. And I've been at working as a journo for 10 years. I made documentaries and all sorts of really good stuff that I'm very proud of. I have never had so much, um, uh, so much feedback for the work that I do um, since I started making these videos. It's been people who have slid into my DMs and have said, you know, thank you so much for the work that you do. I really appreciate the stuff that you do. Keep doing what you do. Thanks for talking on behalf of women. Um, and so you realise actually there is this community of people out there that that back you and support you and and feel like what you are doing and what you are saying is important. I was at um, I, I was at home the other day and I was, had, had just walked out of my apartment building with my husband and I, I saw a guy kind of coming towards me and he, he sort of looked at me. And these days when people look at me, it's, it really can go either way. Like I think they either know me or maybe they've recognized me before it was always like oh I know this person for sure there's no way anyone's going to recognize me and now I do get like low-key recognized on the street right and he turns around and he says um Jan and I was like yeah and he's like oh I just wanted to say and he was um yeah he had a an Arab accent which I can spot a mile away because it sounds like my dad but he said oh um, you know, I'm, I'm from Syria and I just wanted to say that I really love you and your videos and I only came to Australia two years ago and I watch your videos and they like really help me understand Australia and, and what Australia is about. And I just like had this moment of, I was like, fuck man, thanks so much for like stopping and saying that to me. Like I, I just felt so, um, just really honored by that. I, I, that, that this guy was 
watching my videos and, and listening to them and like actually taking something in or learning something or understanding something about the fabric of this society that I was like, that, that is why I, that's why I do it. Like that is why I do what I do. And, and I, I center sort of minority audiences and, and women quite a lot. And so when they do come up to you and say, I've learned a lot from your work or thank you for your work or I appreciate your work, it just puts into perspective the whole reason why I do what I do. And I just like that. He just made my day. Like, no, that entire week, I was like, what a great week. I had a, I had a great time that week. I did nothing, but I had a great time that week because I just I felt so purposeful, you know. You you, sp- you sp- speak uh, there about sort of you know putting those stories central to what you do. Uh, the way that it comes across to me is the matter of factness of it, the normalization, like in in a matter of fact way. Yeah, it's not like you know you, you present the world as you see it matter of factly rather than apologetically. Does that make sense? Yeah. And has that been a conscious choice or is that just your way of presenting that you say these are, you know, when, when you're saying, Hey, this is fucked or you know, this thing happened today and here's what's fucked about it. Yeah. There's never a sense of going, here's my controversial opinion from, you know, this perspective or this perspective. It always has a matter of, here is a matter of fact, you know, walk through why this is shit or what's wrong yeah. here. Is that, has that always been your style? Is that a chosen style? Is that an adapted style? Do you know where that comes from? I think that's just, that comes from um, just my natural way of presenting, mm. I would say. Um, and I I don't, like, I, I, I don't necessarily want you to agree with me. I don't want you to change your mind on any particular issue necessarily. I just want you to know that there's some bullshit out there that you should be aware of and what you do with that information is what you do with that information. And on the question of kind of, you know, uh, delivering things slightly apologetically or more matter-of-factly, like, I'm not sorry. I'm not going to apologise. I don't feel sorry. I don't feel apologetic. I'm not crawling into this space. I'm just standing here telling you what what is what. And and it's not it's and this is why I think research is really important and like honestly I I cannot have enough hours in the day to research. Like research is infinite. And so that's why I have to like really funnel in the key points that I want to kind of hit in these scripts and not get too bogged down in the wider context of it because context is huge and it matters. Um but it's, it's more just like, look, here is what I know. Here is the fact that I am basing this argument on. Here is the number. Here is the statistic. Here is the study. If you have a problem, you go see the researcher. Don't come see me. I'm just, you know, collating this information. Um, How do you, uh, in this world where it is so hard to discern uh, fact from, you know, fake news, how do you you know, find a path through that without being distracted by things that aren't facts? Um, It's really hard. And the one thing that I've said to myself is like really simplify. My videos are really, the message is very simple. It's like one thing. I'm just trying to get across one thing, not 10 things, just one thing. And once you, I think you have a clearer direction of exactly what it is that you're trying to say, then you can keep things a little bit tighter in terms of like, okay, so, um, 
in terms of sort of where to look or the information that is relevant and the information that is not relevant. I, I think like I love numbers because numbers are they're just numbers. Like here is a study of all of the people who, you know, uh, work in this particular industry who have filed sexual harassment lawsuits. That's a number, right? Maybe not all of those lawsuits uh, were proven or whatever, but then when you collate that number with other numbers in other industries and you start to see there's a pattern there, then you can go, okay, well, here's like a, a, a body of evidence that suggests, and it's, it's not, it's not coming to any conclusion. It's just suggesting that something is wrong. You know, like I always, my suggestions are like, look, I just want to draw your attention to the fact that something funky is going on here. Um, like I did a, um, a piece about the, the DEFCON 1 music festival in Sydney where I think it was two, two people who overdosed on drugs at, at DEFCON. And it's, it's quite like a, from my understanding, I've never been there, but it's a, um, you know, kind of hardcore techno kind of festival, I guess. Um, and, you know, I, I made a piece afterwards just kind of talking about um, just the way that we approach talking about this stuff, right? And the fact that um, people will say, okay, just don't do drugs. And it's like clearly, clearly this has not worked. Like I don't know how, I don't know what more evidence you need that saying just don't do drugs does not work. Um, and so I sort of just... Well, no, Jan, the problem is we just haven't said don't do drugs enough. We just have to say it more. Don't do drugs. Yeah, we just have to say just every time, every time. Yeah. Don't do don't drugs. Don't do drugs, guys. Yeah. You know what the safest way to test your pills is? Don't take your pills. Yeah, okay. Good on you. Good on you. Exactly. And <laughs> But but also there was like, the, the, for me, the point was to just like point out the hypocrisy of like the, the state government's position in saying, okay, well, drugs were done in this particular setting. Therefore, this particular setting has to be banned, right? Which is what they did. I think they banned DEFCON from playing either the year after or indefinitely. Not sure on that. But um, so this idea that, okay, so anywhere where drugs are taken has to be banned? Like, are you going to ban ad lunches? Because I can assure you, like... Oh, ban parliament. Are you going to ban parliament? Are you going to, mm. you know... Ban the spring racing carnival? Are you Definitely ban the that. Spring... What ban else are you ban any tradie awards night that I've ever <laughs> emceed. I'll give, I'll give you that. Are you going to ban barbecues? Yeah. Like, uh, people haven't... Long distance, uh, long distance truck drivers. Long they're, distance They're truck out. Drivers. They're gone. Exactly. No, of course. But if you look at the statistics, and this is why you say if you look at the statistics. Yeah, exactly. Right, is, you know, Australia has the highest per capita drug use of anywhere in the world. The argument that I always say is that if just say no worked, then we could have the argument about just say no. But we have so much evidence over the history of human civilization that says that just say no does not work. Mm -hmm. In fact, in Australia, the complete opposite, which is we have the, one of the highest per capita use of drugs in the entire world in a country where it's illegal. It, being illegal has not stopped people from taking drugs at all. But it's not just that. Like if you, when you say let's talk about the statistics, let's do it because the one key statistic that I had in there came from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare um, from a study that they did a couple of years ago where it showed that 43% of Australians, so that's almost half, 43% of all Australians have at some point in their life tried an illicit substance. Yes. Right? So, and, what, and that doesn't count cigarettes, alcohol and It doesn't because they are not illicit. Yeah. That's exactly right. But they're all drugs. They're all drugs. Right. Exactly. But this is, this is just 
illicit, illicit. substances, yeah. right? So if you're on a bus and there's 10 people on that bus, look around you. Five of them will have at some point tried an illicit substance. It's not about ne'er-do-wells at festival and dumb young people that don't know anything. It's something that almost half of the population has some experience in. So don't you think that the at least the conversation around this stuff should change? Like, I'm not advocating any particular position. I'm not saying necessarily bring in pill testing, decriminalise drugs, you know, um, don't penalise people caught with whatever. I'm just saying, like, does it not make sense that the conversation changes given what we know about the way that Australians consume drugs? That's all I'm saying, you know? Um, And so when I kind of uh, approach topics like that, I approach them in that way of just saying, look, here's a bit of information that I think is pretty key to this whole thing. Like Also, it was a techno music festival and I dare anyone in the world to enjoy techno music without drugs. But <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole other argument. That's just my editorial. My editorial. Now, that's your controversial opinion. Will. Did you have a, have you had a favorite video that you've made? Is there one in particular that you like, I'm glad that I got to say this. This is, you know, when I, when it was done and when it was out there, that that voice was being heard on something. I'll, I'll give you an example mm. so that you know, and, and it comes from me and then it might give you some time to think about it as well. But if I look back on things that I'm proud of in my stand up career of pieces that I've done four or five years ago, whenever the Adam goods stuff was happening, I, I, I spent a considerable amount of time writing a piece about what was happening with Adam Goods because I was particularly passionate about that. Um, as a fan of AFL, I felt like not only that it was a, stain on, on, you know, on what was happening to Adam Goods, but it made me feel less proud of a game that I enjoy supporting. You know, mm. I, it, it was hurting me on a whole bunch of levels that I wanted to write something that represented that, but I wanted to weave it in with, you know, changing the date of Australia Day. And it ended up being this quite big, you know, routine. But the, the, the key part of it was the Adam Goods stuff. Like, and I remember just afterwards thinking, I'm so glad that I got that piece to, to work and to get out there and that I could go out on stage every night because I basically would just go through the arguments from the people saying it's because he ducks for free kicks. And I'd gone and researched how many times he ducked and yeah, what right. free kicks he got and where he ranked in the league for these things. And just numbers, numbers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, being able to go, well, you might say that he ducks mm-hmm. for free kicks, but if you actually look at the stats, he's 43rd in the league for free kicks above the shoulders or whatever it is. Yeah. And just be able to go through it and say, no, you can bring your arguments, but I've done the work on this. I've walked through it and I know that what I'm saying is right. Is there a video in particular that comes to mind where you felt at the end, you're like, I'm glad, I'm glad that I did the work on this. I'm glad that I've got that out there. Um, I've done, I've done quite a lot of videos. I'm trying to go through. There might not be one that springs to mind. I'm, I I just was curious if there was, Uh, let me ask this then. I'll ask you another question. Yeah. Do you know which of your videos has had the most views? Is there one in particular that has resp- the audience has responded to? Yeah, it would have been the one after the Christchurch massacre, mm. which I think has had maybe five or six million views. Um, and I think that one went quite international. So I had a lot of people from all over the world um, sending me messages about that one and a lot of people from New Zealand as well. Um, and I think it's, you know, people were at that time just kind of reeling and and trying to understand, trying to make sense of it all, you know? Um, and, and so I think it, it hit 
it hit a nerve that I think a lot of people already knew. And I, I think it just said what a lot of people were already thinking and already knew and maybe didn't really know how to say it, which was that we treat white suspects or white terrorists, let's call it for what it is, he was a terrorist, um, we treat white terrorists very different to brown terrorists um, and that's partly because we feel complicit in white terrorism and we, we, we struggle with that, I think, as a society. It's uh, in the week that we're recording this, uh, it's reared its head again. There's been uh, shootings in America that, you know, can be described as white terrorism. You know, very similar references to the manifestos and opinions. Um, yeah, look, I, I, I'm not asking for any you know, perfect thoughts on this and I'm springing it on you. But how do you, how do you look at what's happening, what happened in New Zealand and what just happened in America and this the rise of this sort of, this version of, uh, you know, white terrorism, yeah, that it seems to be, you know, prevalent at the moment. Do you have yeah. thoughts on where we're, where we're at and what's going on with this? Yeah. And these are just sort of, I'm, I'm just, I'm shooting the breeze here. Yeah. I'm sort of just brainstorming this stuff off the top of my head, um, which I haven't really hugely looked into the research of, but this is, this is my theory. Okay. So it's just, yeah. it's just a theory. Um, I think what's happening is is twofold, and we're seeing it happen in in places around the world where we've seen um, mass post war immigration, right? So, so so just let's let's broaden out the context quite a bit. So we've seen mass post war immigration to countries like America, Australia, Britain, New Zealand, um, these sort of like liberal Western countries. Europe um, after World War Two, large parts of Europe were decimated. They brought in a lot of immigrants from North Africa, essentially to help rebuild parts of the continent, right? Um, so these countries all over the world have seen mass immigration and they've needed it. I mean, let's not lie, girl, you know, immigrants have built half this country. Like for Australia's population mm -hmm. to grow, especially post-World War II, we needed immigration. Everybody knew this. So I think what's happening is that the, the, um, the ethnic makeup of these countries is changing, right? So now we're like 50, 60, 70 years post-war, right? And the makeup of these countries is really changing. So in America, for example, white people are going to be a minority by 2050, Okay, in terms of, you know, what we understand to be white of Anglo-Celtic or white European background. So so the demographics are shifting. Okay, and I think that 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 makes people uncomfortable. So that xenophobia that already exists kicks into overdrive of and, and, and there ends up being a sense of loss. Like, oh, hang on a second. This is mine. I've always identified this way. This is my country. I'm used to this country being like this. And now all of a sudden it's going to be like that. Okay, hang on a second. White people have been a majority in America for hundreds of years. Look at all the wonderful things they've built. And then suddenly in 2050, we're going to be a minority? It's contending with white people being a minority. That's a very hard thing, I think, for white people to process. I'm generalizing, but again, my theory, right? So, so we've already got that happening where demographics are changing. The other thing that we've got happening is something interesting that I think is happening. Do you think part of the fear, and I, as you said, you're generalizing. Yes. Uh, and not, but we're talking about the element of society that's responding in a negative way to that idea. So, so, I'll get to so that. I think that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, do you think there's a fear that, that end of the civil that end of the the community, and let's just, I couldn't find the word I was really looking for there, but that what if they treat us the way we treated them? Maybe. Well, I mean, I think white people know what it's yeah. like to be a minority. 
And they don't want to be that because yeah. being a minority can be a bit shit. It's no good. It's no good. We were no good to minorities. We don't want to be a minority. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly what I think is happening. We won't get it led into nightclubs. <laughs> we won't get led into nightclubs. Uh, we might be genocided. Let's yeah. remember when we did that to some other people, you know. Um, and so I think, I think white people know actually what it's like to be a minority and it's not cute and they don't want to do it. So having to contend with that is very uncomfortable and scary. The other point is what we're seeing is, um, something is happening with men. Um, I'm, re I'm reading a book at the moment called the end of men, which was written in 2015, um, which is not as dramatic as what the title makes it out to be. It's, a, it's, it's nonfiction. It's sort of, um, examining the, these trends where in the last 50 years, women have done this, which I'm doing like a. Like a Hitler salute. Well, it's weird, it's weird that you've it's weird that you've gone with that. <laughs> sure, I mean, if you want to, I guess, but wasn't the direction I thought you were going to go in. To be honest, I'm sort of what I'm actually doing. Allow me to clarify. Um, not a Hitler salute. It's sort of like mm. a, I'm doing like that an upward inflection. Yeah. So going going up in life, mm, right? That's what Hitler said too. That's, oh God. <laughs> So we've already compared my, we've, the, the interview's done. <laughs> Hitler's been brought up. It's done. Let's just call it a day. Um, we don't, we don't have a Godwin's law on this podcast. Oh, we don't? It doesn't no. work here? God damn it. Only on the internet. Yeah. Um, so, so we've seen women, you know, access education, access money, really kind of um, go up and up and up in their um, access to public life. Um, and we've seen a lot of men, and, and particularly this particular book that I'm reading talks about the men in, in US flyover states whose jobs have gone abroad, um, who are not that skilled, who haven't gone into university, who are looking around and seeing the women around them be far more educated, um, far more aspirational, far more flexible. Um, they've seen their role as the protector and the provider diminished. Men are no longer required to be the provider. They're no longer required to be the protector. And if they are, it's to protect us from other men. Mm. Um, but, you know, women have a freedom now that they didn't uh, 40, 50, 60, 100 years ago, right? So so men, I think, are in a bit of an identity crisis. And this is something that is, that's that's quite serious. Like, I, I don't take it lightly. And it's partly why people like Jordan Peterson are very popular, because they speak to this void, right? And so what happens when you have angry, disenfranchised men, white men principally, um, who have seen their jobs go overseas, who are not being able to, you know, shack up with these women because women don't need them anymore. They go out and make their own money. We don't have to settle for anyone we don't want to settle for. Um, you just have the perfect grounding. You have this perfect fertile ground for this kind of um, radicalization to spring up, right? And add to that the context of, oh, well, you're going to be a minority by 2050. You're already feeling disenfranchised, angry, and you're teaming up with a bunch of other people who are in the exact same position of, as you, and it becomes a recipe for disaster. And I think that's what we're seeing around the world. Fascinating stuff. Um, I ask people on this podcast whether they have a philosophy and we've gone 45 minutes and I haven't managed to ask you it yet. So I feel like I should so that we can have some context for the rest of the conversation. But yeah. do you have a particular philosophy? I always say it can be to anything. You can have more than one and it is a perfectly valid answer to not have one at all. But I like to ask people regardless. Yeah. I have a lot of mantras mm -hmm. that I live by. Okay. That give give I, um... us a mantra. Uh, or a womantra. A womantra. <laughs> Come on. We're never going to have yeah. equal, we're never going to be an equal society if you keep calling them mantras. <laughs> you know what? That is the hill upon which yeah. I will die. It's a person-tra. It's a person-tra. <laughs> I think you're fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, my womantra mm. um, is uh, how are you going to act? 
I really like that because that for me, I'm, I'm a real pragmatist. Um, and I always think that in, in any situation, you can't control what people do. You can't control how cookies crumble, but you can always control the way you react to that. Um, and so I, I try, I don't do it all the time, but I try. And certainly in situations of adversity where I'm like struggling or feeling really frustrated or not quite sure what I'm doing or where I'm going, I always ask myself, how are you going to act today? And it puts everything into the perspective of you have the agency and the power to change this. How are you going to act? What are you going to do? I find that really powerful. And it's something that I recently have had to re-remind re myself of. Remind myself, I guess it was probably. Yeah, I think the re, I think the re is redundant. <laughs> <laughs> the re is already there. <laughs> re-remind myself. I'm bringing that in. Well, no, because I think that I have previously reminded myself and I, I've had to do it again because I'd forgotten, which is that idea that, Sometimes you can't change the circumstance, but you can change how you react to that circumstance, that you have agency over your reaction. You yeah. have agency over how you're going to act in relation That's to that. That's the thing. only thing you have agency over. That is the only thing you have agency over. We spend so much time trying to control the uncontrollable when the only thing that we can control is our reaction to the Literally. uncontrollable. So don't, don't focus on anything else. It's like, it's, it's a drain. It's time spent. Mm. It will take your energy. It will take your time. It will take your brain space. Don't pour it down the drain. Just ask, how are you going to act? It's the only thing you can do. Do you still get caught in? Because that's very similar to what I try to live my life by, mm. but I find when I'm going through times when, you know, I'm, I'm at my worst or life feels like it's at its worst is when I'm not able to get that distance from those things. You know, that idea that somebody is doing a thing over and over and you get caught up in the fact that you're angry at them being them, as opposed to going, well, I could just react to this in a different way. Yeah. It, well, it's it, this, you need to employ this strategy in those key moments. And uh, like I said, actually ask yourself, like go and stand in front of a mirror. If you want to be dramatic about it, go and stand in front of a mirror. If you're feeling, if you get to the point where you're so angry about someone and it, and it could be because there's a sense of injustice, like you, you have a right to be angry maybe in that situation, right? So you feel like you are justified in your anger. Great. Feel justified. That's fine. Then go and stand in front of a mirror and say, how are you going to act about that? How are you going to act about being angry? You're angry. That's fine. I'm not taking that away from you. Keep that. But how are you going to act about it? It's good. I like that a you lot. You like that? Yeah. yeah. It's good. I really dig that. That's, I think that's very good. Yeah. Uh, so tell me, I, I'm very interested in how you came to be who you are now. Because you seem to me, you sit in front of me being such a, you, you seem very composed. You have a, obviously an incredible intellect. You're very funny and, you know. Uh, you have a Thank sense, you, Will. you seem to have kind. a sense of who you are. Is this something that, have you always been a person who's had a sense of who you are or have you had to develop a sense of who you are? I think I have always had that. I really do think I have always had that. My sister said to me the other day, um, we were talking about couches or, or some kind of furniture. And I said, oh yeah, I, I think I want to, I want to get like a black and white rug. And my sister said, Black and white. She's like, they're just your colours. You've always just known that you like them. You know, she was very indignant about that. She was not happy. <laughs> 
you know, she was not happy saying that to me. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. I have always just known that I've liked them. I've always known that I wanted to be a journalist. I've always known. Well, actually, I, I wanted to be an actor. Um, that did not happen. Myriad reasons. But I've always known that I wanted to be a journalist. Why did you want to be a journalist? Because you're young enough to know that journalism was going to be over by the time you were in it. Like, <laughs> I have a journalism degree and I... Am, you I, I, Well, come on. Uh, <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah, I have a journalism degree. That's I studied unreal. journalism. Graduated first in my course. I think you're fine, Jan. Oh, I yeah. graduated like very, very mediocre, just FYI. Yeah. But that's... that's I didn't the know only that. reason I boast about it is that I then went on to not do journalism. Yeah, sure. So I feel like it's a, yeah. you know, a good empty boast. You know, I do a job that you need no qualifications for. Yeah, no right. one ever yells out at a comedy gig, show us your degree. Yeah, that's <laughs> that <okay>. right. <laughs> yeah. Does not matter. Exactly. Does not mean one thing. But... Yeah. It uh, qualifies me to host the podcast where I interview people. But, yeah. you know, I have a journalism degree and I worked in the Canberra Press Gallery for a while. Newspapers. I was in newspapers. I was a newspaper journalist. What a newspaper. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> but that's what I mean. Like, you know, like back when, I, you know, for me, however many years ago it was now, um, 25 years ago when I was, I was in the press gallery, at the, in the press gallery writing, you know, financial review articles about, you know. Yeah, right. Yeah. I did not know this no. about you, Will. Yeah. So, Very fascinating. So for me, even then, you could tell that journalism was getting a bit wobbly. It felt like it was the final days of, uh, you know, media organizations having decent budgets to employ yeah. the right amount of journalists. And it was before online had become such a thing where clickbait and that style of journalism had sort of overtaken the idea of, you know, for want of a better term, quality journalism. I think that's actually a pejorative and it's not because there's great journalism still today. Yeah. But the a I, lot more than there was before, FYI. There's also a lot more shit, but yeah. Yes. I think that what you're saying is absolutely true. There's a lot more in general. Yeah. And it, it's meant that there's a lot more good stuff and your, and your capacity to access that good stuff is there. Yeah. You know, I can access great journalism from around the world from my bedroom now, mm -hmm. which is brilliant. But at the same time, you have to wade through a lot of complete and utter shite to get to the good stuff because the, overwhelmingly the majority of journalism is not journalism. It's, it's, you know, clickbait headlines and terrible stories about things that aren't important. Yeah. So what was it that, attracted you to journalism? Um, so I was always, um, I, I love watching the news. Um, just like as a child, um, I remember being in, uh, in high school, I think it was year seven and, and the teacher was going around the class and saying, okay, well, what were some of the shows that you all watched last night? And the kids would say this and this and this. And she got to me and I said, the news. And she sort of looked at me like, the news and everybody turned it was like you know in the scene like the, the class just stops and everyone just like whoosh, turns around and looks at you and goes the news um and that was the first actual the moment where i was like oh not everybody watches the news like you guys don't like watching the news They're like no the news is boring um so i always loved doing that um and i was always very fascinated with like society what was happening um the, the politics of it the social makeup of it the sociology of people um you know who we were trying to just understand trying to understand the world i was always and still am and will always be very sort of fascinated and engaged with that and the news was a filter the news filtered all of that for me. And I realized also very early on that I'm, I'm, I'm quite a good communicator. I'm, I'm quite a good filter like that. Like it was something 
it was a vocation that I thought, oh, I could do that. I could actually see myself doing that. Um, and I've always sort of been very good at um, speaking and presenting. I, I remember I, my mother says, and look, my mother says a lot of things, but she says that I, I started t speaking at, at nine months you know, and, and sort of enunciating words at nine months, which I think is a lie because a nine-month-old can't do that. But she was adamant. She was like, you did. You said your first words at nine months, you know, before you could even walk or do anything else. Um, and to some extent, like, I, I, I believe her a little bit because I, I moved to France in my final year of um, study to do a year abroad. And I remember being really good at speaking, but shit house at writing like spelling and grammar were all over the place um the, the construction of the sentences that I would write down just wouldn't make sense I'd use the wrong verbs I'd use the wrong adjectives I'd use the wrong everything but I could speak really well and so it got to a point where the the, the teachers at the French school that I was at they just didn't know which class to put me in because they were like you speak so well but your writing is garbage you know, so it was honestly, a, 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 they were either going to put me in, in grade five, which was level five or level two because of how well I was able to kind of articulate or, or speak or, or just come across, you know, and it was, it was partly body language as well and partly facial expressions and, you know, timing, but just how I could kind of get that point across using the entire spectrum of language. So I've always sort of been able to do that and just being interested in the world and wanting to be on TV. Let's face it, a little bit of it was, you know, I do want to get on TV. TV is the pinnacle or, you know, being Yanawent is the pinnacle. What else could anybody want in life? Um, they were kind of the, the sort of the, the disparate little bits that kind of got together. What was it about being on TV that appealed to you? Do you know, do you, yeah. do you have a sense of what, what, you know, what the appeal of that was? I think there was a, a certain authority that comes with being on television, right. you know, like you're, you're, you have an authority and you are respected and you know, you're, um, you're, you're heard, you have a voice. Um, I think those qualities now that I'm sort of processing them are probably all things that I, that I really valued or, and, and that I wanted to pursue and like. You know, I'm a Lebo kid from Bankstown Bay. Being on television, like, I could, it's a get out of jail free card. I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want because I'm on television. And my parents are so proud of that. <laughs> you know? <laughs> <It's just> like, <laughs> are they? Is that oh. really a thing that's like, because I think my parents are mostly ashamed to pretend that I don't <laughs> exist. Well, that's why you need to get on television reading the news, Will. But, you know, because they would have. My, my parents are always telling me about other podcasts they listen to. They certainly don't <laughs> listen to this one. I love that. No, my, my, cause I think they would hear from people who were like, oh, we saw Jan on the television, um, you know, and people would be really buoyed by that. And my parents would kind of get a big head that yes, their, their daughter was on the television, you know? Um, and so it, it, it did bring a sense of pride. It's really not the same when I say, dad, I'm still, I'm still on the internet, mm. you know? Yeah. For them, he's for like, them, like no. don't care. Yeah. For them, they don't care. And for like, you know my uncles yeah. and you know that the no one in the community is running into them. And so <laughs> I saw that viral video that Jan did. That's right. Exactly. Um, uh, but tell me about, uh, growing up. Uh, so your parents, you talk about, you know, obviously that level of pride now, yeah. what sort of you know, family situation did you grow up in? Were they very encouraging of you to, you know, be pursuing these things? Like what was their kind of dreams and aspirations for you? 
Well, look, I think anyone that grows up in a Lebanese household, the kind of the the real aspirations go lawyer, doctor, married. Mm. Right. So <laughs> now I need to point out for the people who were listening yeah. uh, that you started with lawyer on the bottom rung, yeah. doctor, and then married on the top rung. That's right. Just in case anybody thought you were going into sending order, that was definitely ascending order. That was definitely ascending order. Exactly. Um, so I think my, my parents were always, you know, they, so I wasn't born here is the other thing. My, I came here when I was four. Well, go back um, to where you came from. Go, yeah. Well, which was just a hotel on Flinders Street. Yeah. That's where I came from. But, um, uh, where were you born? In Lebanon. Okay. Yeah. So we, we came here in 1989, um, and I was four. Um, and you know, my parents were, they were immigrants. They came here with 4,000, $5,000 in debt as my mum uh, likes to remind me. Um, and what were their dreams and aspirations about coming to Australia? Why Australia? Oh, for the kids, for the future, for the, the, the future of their children. It was seen as a place where their, their kids could have a good future. Yeah. They came for me. Yeah. That's who they came for. And, you know, um, you, you, you you carry that, um, you know, it's a beautiful burden, um, but it's a burden and, and you carry that, I will carry that my whole life. Um, and that has partly shaped who I am and, and what I do and why I strive to do what I do so that I can justify the sacrifice that they made. I can, I can, I can tell them that they, they made the right decision. You know, my success means that they made the right decision, that they didn't move here in vain. Cause I, I know what it, well, I don't know, but I, I can imagine what it would have taken for my parents to leave everything and to start here as a, as a 32 and a 34 year old um, Lebanese man and woman um, who spoke no English. They, they, they spoke French and Arabic. They spoke no English when they, when they came here um, to, to be disconnected from everything that they know and love. And, and, you know, we have, we have family here, but we also have family over there. Um, it, it's, it's a real sense of loss. And, and my, my dad's never been back. Um, never. He's never been back. No, I think he, he, he let, he let it go. He really let it go. Um, I, I have you been back? I've been back. Yeah, I've been back. I was back, um, recently just in, um, uh, Christmas of last year and it was, it was wonderful. I, I actually had the best time. I've, I've been there three times now and, and the third time was just the best time. And I, I went with my sisters, um, and we sort of stayed in the village and we went back to the house that my father had grown up in, um, in the village um, and it was just, it was surreal. You know, his cousin was there, uh, Romeo, who's, who's a Gen Xer. So he's in between my dad and, and ourself, myself. Um, and you know, he was kind of taking us around the village and, and telling us all of these stories about, because uh, there, there was a civil war in, in, in Lebanon. And, and he would say, you know, when, when the civil war happened, we would, everyone had to flee. Everyone left the village, but what would happen would be the men in the family would kind of come back every two weeks and they check on the house just to make sure it hadn't been looted or it hadn't been bombed or that it was still standing basically. Um, and, uh, he said, you know, they'd come back and they'd have, they'd be armed and they'd kind of be walking into the village to just make sure everything was still as it should be. And I was like, what men? And he's like, oh, you know, like your dad, you know, George, Clovis, it's just started rattling off all of these people. And I just had this moment of like, my dad? Like with, with an AK-47 coming back to check on the house in the village. Are you fucking kidding me? Like if you meet my dad, he's the most mild mannered law abiding 
Like the man does has not broken a rule in his life. Like if the speeding limit is 50, he will go 49 and not, you know, a single kilometre over. So it was just this completely different picture of my father um, in a time that was just so surreal to me. You know, it felt like a pretend time, but it, it was just the 70s, you know. It was just... 30, 40 years ago. And, and, and it was that village and we were standing in the spot where, you know, you, I had this kind of picture of like everything went sepia and you just see this group of like men in flares and big afros carrying AK-47s up to the house and one of them's my dad. It's crazy. I don't know how I got into that story, but hey, here we are. I'm really, well, that's fascinating to me though, but also the fact that he, yeah, I mean, you know, maybe I'll have to do a podcast with him sometime, but yeah. you know, the idea that, that he left that behind, you know, yeah. that he started a new life in a new place. What did he do in Australia? So he became an accountant. Um, oh, so really, <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, not, yeah. not much use for an AK-47 at the accountancy no, firm. No, no, he's, he's put that away. Yeah. 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 So, he, um, he became an accountant mm. and, um, started a, a company, which was, you know, in the first few years, it was really hard. Um, but it's, it's, it's doing quite well now. And, and my mother went back to university at 40 in, a, in at age 42 and graduated from um, Sydney uni and got her qualifications as a teacher recognized and has been working as a teacher ever since. Um, so, you know, it was, it was a rocky first decade, I think for my parents, not that we ever felt it. Um, and, and now I think that obviously much more ensconced, but still my mum has been back, but my dad just refuses. Uh, there are so many things that I would love to talk to you about, but we're already, yeah, I've already uh, talked to you for ages and <laughs> there's uh, some comp compulsory questions. There's some things that I like to get to, but there's one more thing that I want to talk about before we get to the, the regular questions, if you don't mind, because it's been referenced a couple of times and referenced without further uh, unpacking and without much explanation. And I'm, I'm cognizant of the fact that there's a bunch of people who listen to this podcast who aren't from Australia, who haven't been raised in Australia, who don't necessarily understand uh, the cultural importance of uh, an incident that's been referenced a couple of times in the podcast, which is Cronulla. In fact, we've oh. just shorthanded it to Cronulla, what happened at Cronulla. And to every Australian, we're hyper aware of what you mean by that. But for our international listeners, yeah. uh, it's been said in an offhand way, but it was not an offhand event. And I can't imagine that for, um, you know, the community in which you were raised, it, you know, was an offhand event. You know, it was a, a community defining event or a, mm. well, in fact, I don't want to put words on it. I would like to ask you mm. about Cronulla, what Cronulla means to you when you reference that, what it means, what it meant to the community at the time, you know, what are your thoughts? Can, can we talk about Cronulla yeah, yeah, for a bit? Yeah, let's talk about yeah. Cronulla. Yeah. I don't think we've talked about, I don't think we have really, um, um, examined Cronulla enough as a country. I don't think. Okay, good. Well, that's um, a good starting point. So, yeah. um, my memories of Cronulla, um, I think I might, what, what year do we, what 2005. Year? Okay. So I must have. 2005, I will, oh no, so yeah, I've been in, I'd been in Sydney for a little while. Um, I, so Cronulla, the actual, so the, the Shire, God's own country, you mm -hmm. know, the Shire as they call it, the widest place in all of Australia. I think, yeah, I think if we go to the stats, we go to the facts, at least it was at the time, you know, essentially the largest population of people who were sort of born, born and bred, never leave God's own country, you know, 
often used to joke in stand-up, if someone was from the Shire in the front row, you'd have to go, it's okay, we'll get you home before they lock it. You know, if people live in Cronulla, they don't understand why anybody else would ever, you, you, why, why would you would live anywhere but Cronulla? As a sense of the suburb to me, that's what it meant. Mm-hmm. That's all it was to me at the time, was this place that everybody who was from Cronulla loved Cronulla. I knew it was a very sort of homogeneously sort of white suburb, but I had no other sense of that suburb until the events that happened at Cronulla happened. So can you remember what that time was, what it was like for you, what it was like for the community at the time? Can we talk about it? Yeah, sure. Um, so for those uh, listening who might not know what Cronulla actually was, it was a race riot, effectively. Good. Um, All right. It, well, not good that it was, well, no, but, yeah. but good that we, I think that's what it was too, but I'm, I'm very... Uh, aware of not trying to put words in your mouth or try to prescribe what it was. I'd, yeah. I just want to hear what you thought it was. Yeah, sure. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I thought, it, also, I'm very happy for you to just actually say whatever it is that you want to say, whenever it is that you want to say it. And if I don't like it, I'll tell you. And that's cool. Like, don't feel like, oh, I don't want to say, cause I like you just say you do you, but I, yeah, I think Cronulla well, it was a race yeah, riot. Yeah, it was a race riot. Um, it was a race riot. It was a relatively violent race riot, and it happened on um, Cronulla Beach, which is in the suburb of Cronulla. And it was, um, from memory, uh, thousands of uh, people showed up to the beach um, draped in Australian flags. There was a lot of alcohol involved, and they basically proceeded to um, attack anyone that wasn't white. Um, now, the the target of the hatred, I suppose, at Cronulla was the Lebanese community. Um, and this is just the context. This isn't, this isn't necessarily my perspective of it. This is what I sort of remember of it and yeah. what I had sort of read of it. But I was, I used to work in retail, um, at, um, at a, just a shopping mall, a suburban shopping mall in Sydney. And I remember getting a phone call from my dad, uh, and this was during the day. And he said, oh, you better turn on the news. And I said, why? And he said, well, he said, they hate us. And I said, I said, what are you, what are you talking about, dad? And he said, they hate us. And I had my first instinct with my dad is to go, dad, you're exaggerating. Dad, they don't hate us. You feel these things very intensely and they're maybe not as intense as what you think that they are. And I was like, all right, dad, well, I'll, I'll, go, I'll watch the news as soon as I get home because I'm at work right now. Um, and being in a suburban shopping mall, um, there's, you know, like JB Hi-Fi, the good guys, whatever. And they have TV screens. And they were playing the news and the news, I'm walking around this shopping mall and the news was about Cronulla. And I can remember seeing the images um, and it's a little bit blurry in my mind of like where I actually saw the image, this particular image first. But I remember seeing the images of somebody um, uh, holding, wearing a T-shirt that said, fuck off lebs. And I, the first thing I thought was like, oh shit, dad's right. And then the second thing that I thought was, why, why is this happening? Like, why is somebody wearing this t-shirt? And then. Was it a, did it, was it drawn on the t-shirt or had they got the. No, no, it was was drawn on. And it. My my, my first thought is, did they get those printed? (laughs) No, they didn't get them printed. Okay. It wasn't that organised. Right. Um, and there were people holding signs as well that said, fuck off lebs. And um, I remember there was one sign that said, no to bully. 
Yeah. Sorry. Um, which, you know, it's one of those things where you're like, it's, but it felt very sinister at the time where you're like, you see that and you're like, my, my first, in, my gut instinct in those moments is to go, lol, that's ridiculous. In that moment, it wasn't. No. In of that course. moment, it was like a very, it had a very sinister undertone where I just, I couldn't, I just, I couldn't see the joke in it. Um, you know, uh, and, and, you know, I'd had kept my eyes on, on the news the whole time. And because I, I never, I never really went to Cronulla. I, I didn't live around Cronulla. I never really went to Cronulla. I had sort of no real reason to be there. I mean, sometimes maybe you'd drop down the beach, but it was like two or three times in my life. And so it sort of felt like it had kind of come out of nowhere for me, you know, being in, working in retail, being in that shopping centre and suddenly seeing these fuck off lebs signage. I'm like, fuck off lebs. Like what, what did, what did the lebs do? Like what, what did I do? It became a very personal thing because when you hold a sign that says fuck off lebs, you know who reads that? It's every single Lebanese person in Australia. You're talking to them. Like you're talking to me, you're telling me to fuck off. And so it became like, why, what, what did I do? You know, you start to kind of go, go through the motions in your head of like, why would they be telling lebs to fuck off? You know? Um, and then you realize there was sort of all of this kind of tension behind the scenes between this set of dudes and this set of dudes and the lebs would come into, it was like, like, uh, uh, this is not me trivialising it. This is me just reading it in the least gracious way. Um, it was a real dick swing of white dudes and lebo dudes. And the lebo dudes are after our women and they don't treat our women good. And they're coming here into our community and this is our turf. And we're going to swing our dicks and see whose dicks are bigger. You know, that's a very ungracious reading of Cronulla, but there was certainly that element to it. Um... Right. There was, there was a, a great deal of testosterone, you know, in, in regards to like, there was a lot of other things going on as well, but yeah. there was certainly an element of that sort of, and there was a lot of you alcohol. Know, yeah. Young, young men, well, not just young men, of course, but I'm just recognizing what you said. I do think that one mm. of the contributing factors was there was a whole group of young men, you know, marking their territory against other young men. Yeah, I think certainly that was a, a yeah. key element of Cronulla. And it would be folly to read Cronulla just as that, and I wouldn't, no. and it, it wasn't just that. Um, but that was an element of yeah. it. And to this day, to this day, when it's been, what, almost 15 years, to this day, when I see a, a road sign that says Cronulla, my immediate reaction is uh, it's just a slight tense of the shoulders or just a slight little tiny shiver that goes up the spine to this day, inadvertently. And I clocked it the other day because I was actually driving down to the south coast and Cronulla's sort of um, on the way there and you, well, you pass that area. And I remember spotting the sign for Cronulla and the first thing I thought was, oh, Cronulla. 15 years later, it never goes. I don't think it will ever go. And I've not been back to Cronulla since. Uh, how, and, and maybe this, uh, I'm, maybe I'm drawing way too longer bow on this one, but how does it feel when the, the prime minister of the country is the local member from Cronulla? Does that, does that, is there any sort of sense of 
you know, this country, not only did this thing happen in this suburb, but then this country 15 years later elects Prime Minister, the local representative of that era, area, or is that just, am I linking two things that are completely unconnected to each other? Yeah, I'm, I make a point to not, in the same way that I take umbrage with folks from Cronulla or in that time disparaging the entire Lebanese community, I don't want to disparage the entire community that lives in Cronulla because I'm certain that there were people who were rightly appalled oh, by what absolutely. had happened then and there. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a nice place. Like, and there's yeah, plenty of nice people who live there. I, 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 and yeah. I, don't, I don't doubt that for no. the minute. And you know what? If there's somebody... If, if there's someone from Cronulla who has the chops to be prime minister and is elected, like more power to them. I don't, there's, there's no element of shade of them coming from that particular place that has had, you know, marked its spot in my memory yeah. in that way. Great. Um, well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. I, I think that, um, the next question then is to go how that period of time when you suddenly are like, Oh my God, you know, your dad's saying they hate us. And yeah. then you watch the TV and you go, Oh, it does feel like they hate us. What, what happens after that? Like what's, what's, what's life like in the days and weeks and months that follow when the talk, you know, we, we, we see at the moment with what's happening with the Adam Goods documentaries that, and films that have been released is it reignites the debate and it almost gives permission for the letters pages of the, you know, uh, the Herald Sun, you know, in Melbourne to be filled with yeah, all the people who are anti Adam Goods and were anti Adam Goods five years ago suddenly have an excuse to wheel out their Adam Goods arguments and have them all again. Yeah. I imagine the events that happened in Cronulla, you know, then it becomes a national debating point so that it goes from being this sort of isolated incident on a beach, you know, that was done by certain groups of people to being a national discussion now that is being had where everybody has an opinion one way or the other. Yeah. Um, the easiest way that I can explain what those ensuing months and years felt like is um, you shrivel a little bit. You, you walk through the world with your head slightly lowered, if that makes sense, yeah. which I don't know. I like not a lot of, I don't know if everybody will have experienced that in, in their life, but but you, you, you try and become as inconspicuous as possible, right? Um, and, you know, when you get asked where you're from and what your cultural background is, the first thing that you feel inadvertently is a swell of shame or uncertainty or, um, or, or something, a heaviness before you then proceed to go, okay, well, how am I going to answer this question? What's my tone? right? Am I defiant? Am I calm? Am I nothing? Cause there's nothing to worry about. Am I, am I laughing it off? What am I doing? Right? So it becomes a very kind of, um, de deliberate action because there's so much, uh, it's laden with so much context. Um, and it's, it's, a, it, you start operating in this sort of really fraught space of, well, what do they think of me? If I tell them that I'm Lebanese from Bankstown and we've just had this race riot where there's been placards of fuck off lebs all over the television. And, and so you start being, you start being reactionary to people. You start going, okay, well, I'm just going to, I'm just going to react accordingly to how they act towards me. Right. Which is that sense of shriveling where you're not, you're not out there with your chest up, just strutting. 
your timidly approaching situations and then reacting accordingly. You don't lead, you follow, if you get my drift. Did it change how you felt about the country? Yes. Yes, of course. Yeah. It wasn't just, and this is the thing that we have to understand is, you know, yeah, the, the, the Lebanese were the targets of Cronulla, the community, and there were signs that said, fuck off lebs and no lebs here or whatever, but they were beaten any which, any which guy that looked brown, you know, they beat an indigenous guy and told him to go back to where he came from. If, if, if you can imagine such a thing, you know, they beat up an Indian guy on a train for God's sake. So it was anyone that wasn't white. Right. And the Lebanese became the epitome of that. Right. But that, this is why it has a much deeper grounding in just the dick swinging between the whites and the Lebanese or whatever it was. It, it suddenly became about anyone that, that wasn't white. And, 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 and in my opinion, it was an assertion of Australian identity. Australia is white. We are white. You are not white. And it, that, that was how, that was the ugliest manifestation of that sentiment. Um, and, and it, look, it, and it was what, I mean, you know, the, the use of the Australian iconography around it. I mean, they were draped in flags. They yeah. were, uh, you know, in, in fact, to the point where now anyone who's draped in a flag, I think that, um, you know, there's a connotation of that as well. There may have been a period of time where you could drape yourself in a flag and have a barbecue and nobody thought you were a, a yeah. dickhead. Whereas like now it's also... It's also ruined dra draping yourself in a flag. <laughs> yeah. And that's been, you know, that's actually been one of the sadder elements of it is that now when you look at the Australian flag, it's got shades of Cronulla. Yeah. What well, the Southern Cross tattoo. I always say, I always feel sorry for people who had a Southern Cross tattoo before <laughs> Cronulla because they, they just liked Australia. The amount of backpackers you'd run into in England or whatever when, you know, when I was in my early 20s who had the Southern Cross tattoo and you're like, oh, look at that. What a lovely way to represent where you're from. The the constellation that you can see from your country. And oh then Cronulla God. happens and these poor people are like, oh. Yeah, that's right. Well, it, it changed. It certainly changed the iconography of the yeah. country. Um, and it, it, yeah, it changed. It really, there's something shifted in sort of my perception of, of Australia that day for sure. Uh, how do you, so this is more, I guess, uh, I, I really don't know what the answer to this would be because to my outsider perspective, where that I can never have an understanding of what it would be like. I, I've never been the minority, mm. you know, really in an, in, in an actual sense, I've been in places where I was the minority, you know, but I've never been in a place where my entire existence is being a minority. Mm -hmm. You know, I've, I've been a tourist in, in a minority sense, yeah. you know, rather than, you know, living it as my life experience. FIFO minority. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I know what it's like to be a minority. Yeah. I had a week as a minority once. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. I get it, guys. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, it feels to me like, you know, it, it, it feels so foreign because I can't imagine that there is that sort of element of fuck off Leb anymore. Is there still fuck off Leb? Is that still part of the Australian existence or have we moved to fuck off somebody else now? Oh, or is, or is when we say fuck off to a Sudanese person, do you, is it still fuck off Leb? Cause we're saying fuck off people who are different to us. Yeah. I think the underlying tones are still there. 
Um, I think it's it's changed a little bit because the the Lebanese community is sort of it's come into its own a little bit as well. And you know, you have now second and third generation Lebanese Australians who are articulate. They have agency. They have good jobs. They have money. There's a there's a slightly greater concentration of power within the community, and so I think they have the agency to respond a little bit more than what they used to. But um, no, I think we're still really good at saying fuck off to minorities. And you see the stuff happening here in Melbourne with African gangs. It's the exact same rhetoric, you know? Exact same. Exact same. And I I did a video on this as well where I compared some of the headlines that appeared in, um, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s around Lebanese crime and the ones that appeared in um, now in Melbourne around um, African gangs. And they're exactly the same. So the rhetoric is the same. The rhetoric starts to become about immigration and it starts to become about integration and it starts to become about um, uh, feeling unsafe in your own country and it starts to become about, well, we're importing these people. So hang on, they're now these people and we are we and we are importing these people rather than we're all Australians. These people are Australians. And then it becomes three black dudes hanging around the supermarket are a gang, three white dudes hanging around the supermarket just waiting to be picked up by their mum. You know what I mean? And it was the exact same thing with the Lebanese as well. The community members, will you decry terrorism, good sir? It happens, you know, anytime a, a, a brown person or an Arab person commits a crime, they're off to the relevant community member going, what do you think about this crime? Are you pro-crime or anti-crime? We just need a real statement from you. And it's like... At what point did I give you the impression that I was pro-crime? Like, of course I'm anti-terrorism. And they do that with the African gangs as well. You but know? not just the demand that it be denounced, which in itself is offensive, but the demand that it constantly be denounced. Yeah, constantly. Like every single time you have to denounce it. Yeah. You can't just say, I'm anti it, definitely anti it. That's my opinion. Well, we're going to ask you every single time and you're going to have to denounce it every single time. Yeah. You're like, you can't just put out one no. blanket statement that's like, hey, have already addressed mm. this. Yeah, just refer to the statement yeah. on my website. No, no, you're being trolled out again mm. to denounce it afresh. Like, can you imagine how, just how shitty that might be for someone who say is like of African appearance and just get, getting on with it in their law office and, so, and the phone call comes from the journalist going, hi, there's been a burglary. We, do you denounce burglaries in Melbourne? You're like, what the fuck? I'm trying to just do my job here. Yeah. I d- do you denounce burglaries in Melbourne? Like, do you, journalist? Den- like, of course I fucking denounce burglaries in Melbourne. Mm. Do I need, do you need a statement from me saying that? Like, have I yeah. burgled anyone in Melbourne? After, no. After Bill Cosby, nobody rang me to denounce comedians or Bill Cosby, yeah. you know? like. But even, like, did somebody ring you after Brenton Tarrant? Well, we shall not mention mm. his name because fuck him. But the, he's the guy yeah. that committed the, the, the New Zealand um, the New Zealand massacre. Yeah, you're right. He's you a wh- he's a white Australian man. He's so a as a member of like literally what I am, a white Australian man. Yes. Yeah, well, I I want to say just for the record, in case anybody do in you case den- anybody's here, I do denounce him. <laughs> I absolutely do. Well, do denounce you know what? Him. That's yeah. goodwill because I actually wasn't sure. Mm. I had the impression mm. that perhaps you didn't denounce him, and I just really need you to justify that you do denounce him. Uh, so Martin Bryan, I also denounce you him. Also, just right, just for the just record. Just for the record. But can you see how yeah. it comes from a position of assuming the worst mm. of you? 
I'm going to assume you don't denounce and until you denounce, well, I've just got to assume the worst. I've got to assume that you actually really like terrorism. So unless you denounce the person behind the Christchurch massacre, Will, as a white man and a member of his community, I'm just going to have to assume that you actually like terrorism. That is the character assumption that I am making of you in this moment until you denounce. So kindly do so. Do you find that, um, and this is, it, it comes to representation, I think, um, at least my external observation of it. Uh, I'm, look, look, I don't, I, I know that I probably put in more provisos than I need to, but I'm just trying to co- be conscious of the fact that, you know, so for example, when you are in the majority and your voice is in the majority, what you have is a capacity for nuance as well. Like you don't speak for all people, you know, so like as a white man, I always had the option to disagree with other white men because white men don't have to have homogenous opinions on things because there was always, you know, a hundred of them and you could have debates and whatever. But if there was one woman or there was one, you know, you know, black person or there was one indigenous, but whatever it is, they speak for all people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is one of the things not just to have representation, but to have enough representation that the person doesn't have to speak for all people who look or sound or whatever like them. Yeah. Well, I think it's about um, um, ownership of narrative, right? So the more narratives that you hear from minority communities, the more nuance you're going to get within those communities, right? The more options you have for stories. If the only thing that you see of South Asian people in the States is Apu, that's a problem, okay? So the the more varied the narrative about particular communities, like I'm sure that there would be South Asian people who run quickie marts and have, you know, one-line catchphrases that are hilarious. Sure, but you know what? There's 10,000 other representations of the South Asian community that we're not seeing. So I think it, it is about a variety of representation of one particular community. The Lebanese community, not homogenous. There are people who are conservatives, there are progressives, there are religious people, there are non-religious people, there are Muslims, there are Christians, there are people who are secular. Uh, Of course it's not a homogenous community. Is any community a homogenous community? No. But you would not know that if you weren't getting that variety of narratives from within those communities. If all you see is um, terrorists and thugs and drug dealers and, you know, um, like zany, here come the Habibs, oh, look out, you know, then that's the only thing that you're going, that's the picture you're going to have in your brain of what a Lebanese person is. I always say this, that when I tell, sometimes when I tell people, oh, my background's Lebanese, the first thing they say to me, and this has happened so many times, I can't, I have lost count. The first thing they say to me is, oh, you don't look Lebanese, which I have always found to be an extraordinarily daft thing to say to me because I do look Lebanese because I am Lebanese and that's what we look like. Yeah, but what they're saying is you don't look what my my perception of what Lebanese is. Exactly. And so I would just ask anybody who is about to say that to someone to actually just reflect on what it is that they are actually saying to them. What you are saying to me is I have a presupposed idea of what a Lebanese person looks like and you don't fit that idea. Now, that's just subprime conversation. Lose the presupposed notion, babe. You can have a much better conversation when you do that. It's, uh, again, this is just, uh, this is such a minor insight and I certainly did not need this to have an understanding. But being an Australian touring America, I often found when I went to, you know, what they dismissively call the flyover states, but, you know, the middle America, the disappointment that I was Australian because in their head, 
Chris Hemsworth is Australian or Crocodile <laughs> Dundee is Australian. And so, again, it, it, it's kind of a positive stereotype, but it, it is one that's still a stereotype. And you were like, oh, that's right. You just don't, you don't imagine yeah. that I'm what an Australian looks like. I'm meant to be able to like Steve Irwin and, you know, poke a crocodile and yeah, do yeah. this sort of stuff. Yeah. Not some, you know, guy dressed in all black with pale skin who doesn't look like yeah, he can go right. outside. You've and... disappointed an entire continent yeah. of people, Will. Uh, we need to finish up, but I have some compulsory questions. And when I say compulsory, just you know, I'm the only person who makes up the rules, but I find them compulsory. Great. A benevolent dictatorship. I love uh, it. What do you think happens when we die? Uh, I, I don't know. And I don't know if I care that much. Uh, do you think about death? Um, sometimes. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to that question. I think I could really rack my brains out trying to work it out. And I've stopped. I've gotten off that highway. I've just like, I've taken the exit. I'm like, we go where we go. Um, it, and it doesn't affect the way you live your life from day to day? Um, like the idea that I might be punished somewhat in the afterlife? No. Not necessarily. No, no, that, punished or rewarded? Uh, or or you know, the fact that you die or that you might die soon or that you... No. Uh, does the, the nature of our existence that it ends in death inform the way you live? No. It's interesting. Because another another thing that I like to say, sorry, I know I'm like totally blabbing on because you're like, oh, no, shit, it's almost midday. No, blabbing's good. Uh, by the way, there's no time limit other than your time limit. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and I don't edit. Oh, you don't edit? <laughs> what I like, What I like, Jan, is quantity. That's what I like to bring to the table. <laughs> well, I've, I've certainly brought you some quantity. No, it's I've... been great. You've been absolutely amazing. This has been a fascinating conversation. I've had such a great time. Oh, great. Yeah. Great. Um, but no, is a short answer to that question. And I tend to like, I, I think of it, I don't like the saying life's short. I actually think life's really long. Um, it feels long sometimes. It does feel Once long. Once you get sometimes. to my age, man, you'll be like, oh, it's long and are my hips going to hurt this, <laughs> this much for the rest of it? It's too long. Um, but I think cause I, I, the thing that I like is the subtle difference that life's short reminds you that you're going to die. Right. But life's long reminds me that I'm going to live for a quite a long time, you know, hopefully mm. fingers crossed. And so it, it just puts into perspective actually what matters and that matters. What matters is the timeline that we're, we're kind of here and what matter, what happens after that. I don't know. And I don't care. How do you feel about uh, the state of the actual world itself in regard to that then? Like, you know, obviously climate change being the major issue that we're you know, facing as a planet at the moment, but not the only, you know, life ending issue that the world might be facing. Do you think about, you know, how, what's your level of positivity about, are you one of those people who feels like the world has been through a whole bunch of other things and we will continue to go through things. And at the moment, the one we're dealing with is climate change, or do you have a more pessimistic outlook to the, the current state of the world where, you know, Boris Johnson and Donald Trump are, you know, running things and we're burning as a planet. I mean, I thoughts, uh, the state of the world thoughts. <laughs> Well, look, I don't think that, you know, our faces are going to melt off tomorrow, like in Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's, I don't think that's going to happen imminently. Um, but I do have a real concern about this sort of, um, it's not even a nonchalant attitude. It's almost like a, a, a defiantly um, devil's advocate position on this that I see coming from a lot of world leaders. Um, like we, we, we just know that the that there's a problem with global warming. It's been a problem for decades. You know, it's not like it's, it's sort of just crept up on us. Um, so I do worry a little bit about that, but I, I think for me, it's like the big focus is, is, um, like what, what we will leave behind for other people. 
And I think we've got a real kind of duty um, to not fuck this up for other people. Like we don't own this goddamn planet. You know, we're here for like a tiny, like minutia of time in relation to how old the universe is, right? For God's sake. Like we, it is our duty to, to leave it in a good and right and proper way for the generations to come. And I think we're being a bit derelict in that duty. I, I couldn't agree more. And not uh, just not on that sort of macro level, it just sometimes even on a micro level, which is I think that human beings, if we have one responsibility, is to leave the state of humanity in a better shape for the next generation than it was the one before. Yeah. And you can kind of chart the history of humankind in a general sense, that's been the vibe, you know, that yeah. every generation has a better opportunity to live. And it feels like we're living through a time where that's not the case. People don't have the same access to education or to money and to these sort of things necessarily mm. that they did. You know, it feels like the free university generation or the whatever generation that those good times have almost passed and we're leaving things in a worse state where... Yeah, progress is not linear. People think pro no. it's not linear. You, it, it goes back and it goes forward and there's, you know, um, valleys and mountains. It's not a linear thing at all. And that's scary. Uh, so how important is love in your life? Um, hugely. You mentioned you're married. So obviously your parents are, you know, pretty happy about that. Yeah. And you're, yeah. And you're on TV. Yeah, finally. <laughs> not, not living in sin. Not on TV and not living in sin. Yeah. That's really all they ever wanted. Um, how important is love? Huge. Love is um, everything. Love for yourself, love for your partner, love for your family, love for your work, um, love for your community. I mean, what is, what, what, what is, is love? Baby, don't hurt me. <laughs> don't hurt me no more. Is that what, you, is that what you're going to yeah, say? Yeah, Hadaway. That's where I was going with this. Absolutely. Oh, good pull, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Well done. That's, that's, that's some real rock wheels action there. I'm a 90s music there. girl, baby. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's super important. Uh, what do you think your, uh, your greatest strength is? Um, uh, my greatest strength is, um, my, my rational mind and, and being able to, to communicate. Yeah. What's your greatest weakness? Um, I'm, I'm very impatient and I get, um, a little bit jealous and, and have a lot of FOMO all of the time. Uh, when people speak of you behind your back, what do you hope that they are saying? What do I hope they are saying? Yes. Not what are they saying? Mm -hmm. I've got a list of those. We'll talk about it at the end. No, yeah. <laughs> no, um, no. What, what would you hope that people say of you when they speak of you? Well, I would hope that they, um, say that I am a really great person to be around and that I add value to their life, that I'm a value add. <laughs> no, that's good. I, I like that. I heard that's... Like Jesus, is that, I, I, is that what I want people to say about me? But yeah, yeah. I guess it is. Yeah, Jan, she's a real value add. Yeah, she's but real I value add. But that's, I, I think that's a, a good perspective to yeah. have. Um, if you could have an, a strength of somebody else, someone you may, perhaps you admire um, that you don't have yourself, what would it be? Uh, the strength of somebody. The strength or a skill, you know, it, I mean, when I say the strength, it could be, um, uh, you know, I, when I was speaking to you earlier and you talked about your capacity for picking up language, that's something that if I was asked that same question, I would be like, I, I would love to have a great ear for language. I don't, I have a terrible ear for language, but I, it's something that I admire in others. And when I see people with a good ear for language, it's, it's a skill that I would love to be able to have. You know what I would have, would, would have loved. I, I would have loved to play an instrument. 
Yeah. And I never, I just never got taught it. And I probably was too young to really understand um, the beauty that can come from really being proficient and being able to play an instrument. Like the cello, I just love the cello. Like I, if I listen to like beautiful cello, I will 100% cry every time. Um, I, I, I would love that. If people have a misconception of you, what is it? Um, that I am really loud and annoying. Misconception. Let me debunk that for you. None of those things quite clearly will. I'm sure you'll agree. <laughs> um, can you please agree, Will? <laughs> yeah, definitely agree. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I think people have that mi- or, or, or they have a misconception that I'm like, a lot of people go, oh, I feel so sorry for your husband. Like I must like henpeck and annoy my husband. And that is a total misconception. Total misconception. Like He's- at home, you're just like... Uh- Honey, uh, look, I've, I've had a little issue with how you're doing the dishes and I've made the four-minute four explainer video yeah, <laughs> of yeah, how you should be right. doing it. They're like, God, her husband must just be like having the worst time. <laughs> no, he's having a good time. He's having a great time. <laughs> he loves it. <laughs> well, I'll get him on the podcast and he can answer <laughs> he, to that. He can verify, yeah. Uh, final question. Uh, this is the standard. It's the time machine question. Got a, uh, one trip on a time machine. Back and forward, you get to, yeah, I, it's, I a, it's to... a return trip. Oh, good. It's not a one-way trip. Ooh. Now, uh, I would prefer that you go back to some stage in your life and you either observe it or you have you can change it if you would like to change it. Um, uh, but if you don't want to go back to a point in your own life, you have the capacity to go to back to a point in history and observe or change a point in history. So time machine, where do you go? Time machine, where do I go? Um, you know, I, it's funny. And I think cause I've been reflecting on this time quite a bit recently, I would probably go back to that time in the late nineties, early two thousands. Um, when I was just graduating high school, when there was all of that terrible stuff being said about, um, the Lebanese community and just feeling really small. And I would just, um, say to myself that it's all yours. If you want it, it's yours. Don't worry about anything else. If you want it, it's yours. Go and take it. I think that's what I would say to myself. And I would try and really instill that in myself a little bit earlier than, than what I have come to discover it. And then I would like to think that young you would look old you in the eye and just say, go back to where you came from. <laughs> the future. Yeah. The happy future. The happy future. Yeah, the happy yeah, future. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, we're, we're done. Did you feel like this went okay? Yeah. I did. I how, liked it. How did you feel? I thought it was really good. Yeah. Uh, Podcast Mike, how did you feel? I thought it was great. Thanks for your time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's how we traditionally finish it. All right, Podcast <laughs> Mike. Jeez. <laughs> But I am cognizant that it's almost been about two hours and Podcast Mike is like, bitch, I want to go home. Yeah. Well, you know what? Podcast Mike's getting paid. Yeah. So Podcast Mike is okay. Yeah. Podcast Mike's the one, the only one who makes money out of this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not bloody being paid, am I? No, me neither. No. So the two of us, Great. unpaid. Uh, labor. Unpaid labor. That's but right. old mate over here, old money bags, old Podcast, podcast Mike, <laughs> old Scroogey McScrooge. Mm. No. Uh, anyway, thank you so much, Jan. Uh, it's been a pleasure. What can we plug? Because you, yeah, you uh, like 
so oh, uh, here's you... what I'm going to say. Yeah. Is uh, this won't come out for a, a few weeks because you don't have anything urgent for me to plug, do you? Mm -hmm. Well, you can plug all of my social media yes. pages, which I want to grow so that brands can send Good. me free shit. No. So, t so tell me all of these then. Your Instagram's great. I follow you on Instagram. Oh, do you? Great. Yeah. Well, because it's, you know what I like about your Instagram yeah. is that, because I started, I, I found your videos. And just started to see them on Twitter, I think probably was where the, uh, like people would share them around. Yeah. And then, um, I, I, cause I wasn't really aware of you at all. I think before that, I, I, I don't think, um, and, or, or not, aware, not aware, aware, you mm -hmm. know, I might, mm -hmm. may have seen stuff that you'd done, but, mm -hmm. and then I was like, I, you know, I think, I think I sent you a message at some stage to say how much I was enjoying them. And yeah, you did. I, I was very appreciative of that. By the um, way. I did a bit of a deep dive after that. I was, I yeah, went back and watched some other ones and I just found them. So just your, your clarity of argument and your perspective and yeah, very, just very funny too. I, I, I was really, you know, I, I admired what you were doing on a whole range of levels and, you know, as someone who's interested in comedy and issues and journalism, you know, I mean, yeah. it's in my sweet spot, but I thought that your execution of what you're doing was, was excellent, but I didn't have much sense of who you were or you know, what you would be like or, uh, you know, any of these sort of things. And so finally, when I started following you on Instagram and realized you were a, a bit goofier than perhaps yeah. what you, you know, like there's a, there's an element of that to it, which I was very, very much enjoyed, but I didn't, it, it, it was, it was me broadening. I mean, I felt silly, yeah. Like there was a part of me that felt silly because of course, you know, if you listen to my dumb AFL football podcast, I'm not like that all the time. Yeah. And I'm not like this all the time. You know, the idea of judging somebody by one piece of work that you've seen them do and go, well, that's exactly what they're like all the time yeah. is ridiculous. Yeah. But even I was guilty of doing that. But yeah, so you're on Instagram. What's it? your Instagram handle? Uh, my Instagram handle is JanFran, uh, two underscores. My Facebook is just JanFran. My Twitter is JanFran, two underscores. My LinkedIn is just JanFran. Um, and I'm not on YouTube because I value my sanity. <laughs> oh, is that just because of the commentary? Yeah, a little bit. YouTube's a very, um, different kind of ecosystem. It's an yeah. important one. I probably should be on there, but, um, not as of yet. Okay. Uh, and if there are other things for us to plug when this episode comes out, I'll make sure that I plug them all up the top. Great. Uh, but until then we, uh, is that, you happy with that? Yeah. That's I'm, good. Yeah. I'm happy with that. All yeah. Right. Thank you. Thank you.